If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn there, Exodus chapter 5. Baseball enthusiasts will know who Sandy Koufax is. Sandy Koufax, one of the greatest pitchers in baseball, was referred to as the man with the golden arm. He established one record right after another and went through really a 12-year record or so with the Brooklyn Dodgers, later the Los Angeles Dodgers. On three separate occasions, he received the Cy Young Award by unanimous vote and was elected to the Major League Baseball Hall of Fame in 1972 when he was just 36 years old. His election made him the youngest member ever elected to the Hall of Fame. June 4th of that same year, his jersey number 32 was retired. And yet, despite a relatively short professional career, Sandy Koufax's 2,396 career strikeouts ranked seventh in history as of his retirement in 1966. And he finished overall with a 165-87 and 87 record, a 2.76 earned run average, 137 complete games, and 40 shutouts. Now, it's said that throughout his career, Sandy Koufax primarily relied upon two pitches, which were really his bread-and-butter pitches. His four-seam fastball was one of those pitches, and it gave batters the impression of rising as it approached the plate because of the backspin that he would put on that thing. A second pitch was his overhanded curveball, which dropped vertically 12 to 24 inches due to his unique arm action. Baseball analysts throughout the years have called it the very best curveball of all time because it had more spin on it than anyone else's in the game and may very well have been the toughest ever to hit. The Sandy Koufax. Now, the thing about a curveball is that it starts one way, but it ends another. It comes at you one way, which you think is predictable, but it messes you up because it goes a totally different way. Now, the fact of the matter is life is a lot like that, isn't it? Life has a way of throwing you a curveball. Maybe it's an unexpected problem, uh, an unforeseen circumstance, what we would call an unfortunate series of events that seemingly come out of nowhere. For example, you thought marriage was going to be everything you hoped for, and you thought that you were going to live happily ever after, and then you found out that perhaps that wasn't the way it would be. Or maybe you applied for a new job, you thought that it was going to go a certain way, but you quickly found out that you didn't read the fine print, and you had a curveball thrown your way. You didn't see it coming. Now, here's the thing. Maybe uh, you've had a few of those in your life. You've experienced that. Uh, some days you wonder, why in the world did I even get out of bed this morning? One of those days where you just said, I, Lord, would you just please stop the world? I want to get off. But here's the thing. If you've ever had a day like that, if you've ever experienced the curveball in life, then you're going to be encouraged this morning, and you'll discover that even a man of God like Moses has a curveball thrown at him. And not just Moses, but really the people of Israel. 
And so that's what we see here in this fifth chapter of Exodus where we are in a series of studies of these early chapters in Exodus. We're presented with the life of Moses and the call that God placed upon his life to lead the children of Israel up out of their bondage in Egypt. Now it was no easy task and it was one for which Moses felt insufficient. He saw himself as being completely unqualified and yet he's the one that God lays hold of and calls and raises up for this task. So if you have your Bible there, let's read uh, from Exodus chapter five beginning in verse one. Moses is in Egypt now. He's obedient to what God's called him to do. Aaron, his brother, is with him. And verse one says that afterward Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. And then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with a sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past, let them go and gather straw for themselves. Now notice the play on words here. Uh, Moses shows up and says, Pharaoh, here's what God says, let my people go. And Pharaoh responds with a hardened heart and says, I'll let them go all right. I'm going to let them go and gather their own straw to make bricks. And so he's, he's, he's tightening the noose as it were. Verse 8, but the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. And so the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. And so the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, complete your work, your daily task each day, as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, you were idle, you were idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. 
And the foreman of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. Now listen to this. And they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why? Why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. I want to speak from this subject this morning, an unexpected turn of events, because that's really what we see here in this fifth chapter. As far as Moses is concerned, as far as the people of Israel are concerned, this is a series of unexpected, unforeseen circumstances. A curveball that seemingly comes out of the blue and is thrown their way in life. Now, if you go back to the end of chapter 4, you'll remember we saw how Moses had returned to Egypt, and much to his relief, things initially went well. Uh, he and Aaron met with the elders of the people, and, and that was something that Moses was fearful of. Uh, Moses, one of the excuses that he gave God back in chapter 3 and on into chapter 4 was that the people really wouldn't listen to him. Well, that didn't happen. They believed his message that God had seen the affliction of his people and was about to do something. And so I imagine at that point that Moses must have been on cloud nine. It was a major confidence boost. God is about to intervene. God's going to come through on his promise. I'm about to see God do something miraculous. It's going to be a wonderful thing. And yet you get into chapter five and things take an unexpected turn. There's a curveball that comes Moses' way. And notice how it involves a few things. First of all, notice it involves facing opposition to God's purpose. Uh, the first unexpected event that Moses experiences really is, is, is opposition to the overall purpose of God, which, by the way, that was something that God had told Moses would happen once he met Pharaoh. So perhaps Moses realizes that Pharaoh is going to be stubborn in this, that his heart is going to be hardened, and he's not going to let the people go initially. Now Moses probably doesn't realize just how difficult that it's going to be, but he's facing opposition. Uh, he and Aaron are given the assignment to confront the king of Egypt with this message that he must let the people go so that they may serve the Lord. But again, Moses finds out quick that Moses or that Pharaoh has no intentions whatsoever of letting God's people go. Now, look at Pharaoh's response to Moses in verse 2 where he says, who is the Lord? Uh, who is the Lord? Why should I obey his voice and let the people of Israel go? And Pharaoh says, I do not know the Lord, neither do I have any intention whatsoever to let Israel go. Now, there's a lot that you can unpack and, and learn about Pharaoh from his statement here. Uh, first of all, notice how Pharaoh is ignorant of God's identity. He says, I don't know who the Lord is. Moses and Aaron appear before Pharaoh with this simple declaration, thus says the Lord, which means that this sets 
the words apart as God's words rather than man's words. So they're not there giving their own opinion, uh, letting the people go, setting the people free. This is not an idea that originated with Moses or with Aaron. No, these are God's words to be declared to Pharaoh, even though Pharaoh doesn't receive those words that way. And yet his rejection of these instructions here ultimately are irrelevant because this is the word of God. Which, by the way, no preacher should ever stand before his congregation and say something like this. I think, or my opinion, you didn't come to hear my opinion this morning. You didn't gather together to hear me talk about politics or what's going on in the SBC and all such as that. We've gathered together as the people of God around the Word of God because we understand something that this Word uh, is authoritative and binding on my life and your life. Second uh, Timothy chapter 4, Paul tells Timothy, Timothy, preach the Word. Be instant, in season and out of season. There'll come a time when you've got to rebuke, where you've got to exhort, where you've got to convince and convict and that kind of thing. Preach the Word as in God's Word. And so Moses here, really, this is the prophetic formula that you see all of the prophets of the Old Testament and those who stand in their tradition, you see this simple formula, thus says the Lord. And yet Pharaoh, he doesn't know who the Lord is. And he asks the question, who is the Lord? He's not asking that question because he's genuinely interested in finding out. No, there's an element of pride here. There's an element of sarcasm here as he's essentially saying, who is this Lord that you're referring to and why should I care what he has to say? And then he denies that this Lord has any claim on his life. He says, I don't know this Lord of whom you speak. And it was his own ignorance of God's identity where Pharaoh ultimately sets himself up as Lord. And, and those who serve him ultimately serve him as their Lord. Because notice, notice down in verse 10, the same formula is applied when the taskmasters and the foremen of the people go out and say to the people, thus says Pharaoh. Moses says, thus says the Lord. But the servants of Pharaoh go out and say, thus says Pharaoh. Now you need to know something. There were a lot of gods in the Egyptian pantheon. I mean, there were really thousands of gods in the Egyptian pantheon, and, and ultimately there were nine main deities, ten if you counted Pharaoh himself. And the Egyptians worshipped Pharaoh, believing that Pharaoh was really the mediator between the gods and the people. And that's something that's going to prove very significant in the chapters ahead, as there will be ten different plagues that will be poured out on Egypt. Because this will be God's way of proving himself to be the one true God, one who is far superior to all the false gods of Egypt, one with greater power and authority than Pharaoh himself. Pharaoh says, who is this Lord? I don't know him. Well, for the next nine chapters, Pharaoh is going to learn who he is. So he's ignorant of God's identity, and then notice how he's resistant to God's authority. Again, he says in verse 2, who is this Lord that I should obey his voice? What claim does he have on my life? Why should I do what he says? So he, he doesn't know who God is, and yet he's also resistant of his authority over his life. 
Uh, One person has said that this is the contradiction that lies in every unbelieving heart. People who refuse to acknowledge the living God still defy him at every turn. Uh, Paul writes about this in Romans chapter one when he says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their own unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. That is, they squelch out the truth. They press down upon the truth because what can be known about God is plain to them in a general way because God's shown it to them. Uh, He's written his law upon the human heart. Now, you remember a few weeks back from chapter three when God reveals himself to Moses. Uh, Moses comes to know who God is and yet every person knows that God is. Even Pharaoh himself knows that God is. He just doesn't know who God is. And therefore, he's resistant to God's authority. And then notice how this ultimately culminates. Uh, Pharaoh is malevolent toward God's community. He begins to oppress and attack the people of God. Who is the Lord? I don't know who he is, and I'm not going to let Israel go. In fact, I'm going to make things worse for them. And so he's openly hostile and vicious toward the people of God. He has no intentions to let them go. And and he's going to intensify the affliction of Israel so that their situation becomes even more difficult. And so Pharaoh has no concern for the welfare of others. All he cares about is what other people could do for him and his own empire. Now, folks, listen. There's a major lesson here because that's what sin and unbelief will do in your life. Did you know that? It will make you irrational. Ignorance of who God is, resistance of his own authority. Inevitably, that's going to lead to increased pressure and persecution and opposition from the world system, an unbelieving world system that is in rebellion against God. It's the thing that Jesus told his followers that we could anticipate. He said in Matthew 10, 22, all men will hate you because of me. He said this in John 15, 18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. He's talking about the, the world system that ultimately is under the influence of Satan, the evil one, the God, the ruler of this world. I mean, the world is under the iron grip of a cruel dictator who's a malevolent ruler who works hard to keep people blinded to their sin and their need for God's saving grace. And Satan then influences the powers of the world, culture and politics and entertainment and false religion. And it's often here that Christians stand out and they're different and are therefore the subject of attack and vilification. And unbelievers, they're not our enemy, church. You have to understand that they've been blinded by the enemy. And Paul tells the church in Ephesus that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. And that's why, that's why as the people of God, we need to know that we've got to be armed with this gospel, which is our power. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, and the gospel needs to be declared. The gospel needs to be shared. We rely upon power. We rely upon the word of our testimony. We rely upon the work of God's spirit who opens the eyes of the blind and sets the captives free. 
And that's not going to be an easy task. We're going to face opposition. And so when you face opposition for the sake of your witness, when the church faces opposition for the sake of its work in the world, that shouldn't be something that causes us to say, woe is me, to throw our hands up in despair, but rather it should be something that we anticipate because Jesus said it would be this way. Now, Moses, Aaron, they're facing opposition to God's purpose. Now, notice the second thing. That opposition leads to increasing persecution for God's people. Verse 6 says, The same day Pharaoh commanded his taskmasters and the foreman, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks like you did in the past. Let them go gather straw for themselves. And oh, by the way, they still have to produce the same daily quota of bricks to build my cities, to build my empire. So, so here's what's happening here. And, and think about how much of a curveball this would have been for Moses. His actions lead to an increased burden that's laid upon the shoulders of God's people. He was simply being obedient to do what God had called him to do. He had done the very thing he was commanded to do, and yet it led to greater adversity for the people he was called to lead. The pressure is increased on the people. How so? Well, there are some unrealistic expectations that were required. Pharaoh makes life unbearable for the people. You need to require the same number of bricks, but don't let the people go gather, or don't let them have any straw to make bricks. They've got to go gather that straw for themselves. And yet, they still need to produce the same number of bricks. It, it's an irrational madness. It's an unrealistic expectation that these, these, these Hebrews who were cruelly oppressed, cruelly treated by Pharaoh already, how in the world would they ever be able to add this workload to their already insurmountable, unbearable workload. And there's irony in the Pharaoh's words here. Moses says, God says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, I'll let you go all right. I'll let you go and I want to make things harder on you. That's how it's going to be. So these are unrealistic expectations that were required. That results in unfair oppression then that was inflicted upon the people. Unfair oppression. Pharaoh then has the audacity to accuse the people of being idle when they don't produce the same number of bricks. And yet all the while, it had been his intention to break their spirits and keep them in bondage. Which, by the way, that's the enemy's strategy for a person's life. Did you know that? He wants to keep an iron grip on the souls of men and women. And Satan wants to force them into slavery to sin. His method is always bricks without straw. Sin is a cruel and harsh taskmaster. And, and sin is one of those, it, it always demands more and more from a person while giving less and less in return. You ever heard that old uh, lyric from, I think it's an old Southern Gospel song, something to the effect that sin will always take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay? Because sin is a cruel, harsh taskmaster. 
You think about how this works in a person's life. Often that person, they indulge their lust, which they think is going to satisfy their heart. But the more they indulge their lust, the less happy they are, the less satisfied and fulfilled they are. Or the more a person tries to acquire stuff for himself or herself, the more they try to scratch that selfish itch that they have, the less content that he or she will be. That's the way it always is with selfish, sinful living. It's always more bricks, less straw. It's what God said to Cain in Genesis 4-7, sin lies at the door and its desire is for you. It always seeks to shackle. It always seeks to enslave. And it's the condition of those who are without Jesus Christ. And what we need, men and women, we need a Savior who will set us free from this bondage. Israel needs a deliverer. They need God to rescue them from this bondage, from this heavy yoke of oppression. And you know what? We need a Savior far greater than Moses to deliver us from the slavery of sin. And the Bible says in Hebrews 2.15 that Jesus is that Savior because through his own death, he's destroyed the power of him who had the power of death. That is the devil. And he delivers all of those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Aren't you grateful that Jesus sets the captive free? And it's through his death and his resurrection that we pass from slavery into freedom. Revelation 1.5, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. If the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. So these unrealistic expectations lead to just just vicious, unfair oppression. And then notice that in the midst of all of that, the people draw an uninformed conclusion. There's an uninformed conclusion that they draw in the midst of their misery. When they meet Moses and Aaron on their way from Pharaoh, the afflicted foreman, they say to him, the Lord look on you and judge because you've made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh. You've put a sword in their hand to kill us. In other words, Moses, you said that God is coming to deliver us from our bondage, but you've made things worse. And so what do they do? They blame Moses and Aaron for the whole ordeal. Now, can you imagine how gut-wrenching this must have been for Moses? I mean, 40 years earlier, he had tried to defend the people, killing an Egyptian in the process, and here are the words that were thrown in his face, who made you a judge over us? Now, those very same words are being flung right back in Moses' face 40 years later. Now, I think there's something profound here if, if we'll, we'll receive it. If the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. And yet, here's the thing. Oftentimes, obedience will result in greater conflict for you and for your family. Obedience will subject you to attack oftentimes from the enemy of your soul who opposes your faith. Satan will not let go of a person without a fight. You've witnessed this in in someone that you love, you've, you've shared your faith with, you've prayed for, and you see them wrestling with matters of life and death, issues of sin. And Satan comes along and wants to try to confuse their minds and blind them from the truth of the gospel. And you've prayed and you've prayed and you've witnessed and you've witnessed and you've seen this in a person's life. 
And then in your own life as a Christian, you discovered that the Christian life was no walk in the park. You get saved, and next thing you know, man, you, you feel like you're fighting hell by the acre in your life. Why is that? It's because you have an enemy who opposes you. Satan opposes you. He'll do everything he can to want to afflict you. And so the people here, they don't understand what God is doing behind the scenes on their behalf. And so they look for someone to blame, and so they blame the leader. And it's a curveball that's thrown at Moses. It seems like it comes out of the blue. seems like it comes from nowhere. Moses, you've made matters worse for us. You promised that we're going to be set free from our captivity, that God is on our side. Well, now look what you've done. Things are so much worse. And what do you think Moses is going to do when he's faced with that kind of curveball? Verse 22, listen, Moses turned to the Lord. What do we do whenever a curveball comes our way in life? Do we complain about it? Do we throw up our hands and quit? Do we dig deeper and turn to our own resources and try to just push our way through it? No, I'll tell you what you do. You do what Moses does. Even when you don't understand what's going on, you turn to the Lord. So the third thing that we see here, Moses is experiencing confusion in God's plan. Listen to his confusion. And by the way, he's taking the matter to God in prayer. He doesn't know what's happening. Moses turns to the Lord and he says, Lord, why have you done evil to all these people? Why did you ever send me? Now notice he's using a three-letter word that we all use whenever we face the curveballs of life. It's the word why. Why? Why, Lord, have you done evil to these people? Why, Lord, have you ever sent me? Ever since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, to do what you told me to do, he's done evil to these people, and you've not delivered your people at all. So it's a question that really expresses deep confusion in his mind and heart, and Moses is not alone in asking that question because He's included in the ranks of many, many others who have asked that same question and have faced their share of confusion in the will of God. Later on, Joshua will ask this question after experiencing defeated Ai. Lord, why have you brought these people over the Jordan at all, only to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites? Gideon asks the question, why? Nehemiah asks the question, why? Job. I'm telling you, Job is a whole profile of someone who suffers and doesn't understand why in the world. You talk about a curveball, Job knew what a curveball looked like, didn't he? Job asked this question after experiencing such pain and not knowing why in the world God had allowed such painful circumstances to come his way. He says, why did I not die at birth? David in the Psalms asked questions like this. Why do you stand so far off, Lord? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? The prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, they all join ranks with Moses, and they ask the question, why? And perhaps most vivid of all, Jesus himself on the cross, quoting from Psalm 22, asked the question, why? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Not because he didn't know. Because he's expressing confusion in that moment, my confusion, your confusion. The fact that sometimes the will of God does not make sense from a human perspective. How is it that a world 
in sin and darkness could be saved through the death of the Messiah. It doesn't make sense to me. And yet this is what the will of God demanded. Anne Graham Lott said something I thought was so profound. She said, if we don't figure out how to process the whys of life, we'll end up cynical, resulting in a catastrophic loss of faith. If we don't answer correctly, we'll grow bitter, resulting in a darkened personality. In Christ are hidden all of the mysteries of wisdom and knowledge. We believe he has the capacity of working all things for the good of those who love him. We know he works all things according to the ultimate purposes of his counsel. We consider all is right that seems most wrong if it be his sweet will. So when we experience the curveball in life, the unexpected event, when we experience failure and the confusion often that stems from it, folks, we always need to come right back to the Lord in order to gain his perspective. That's what Moses is doing here in these verses. He's on his face before God in prayer. He's pleading with the Lord. He doesn't understand his situation. He's become the object of scorn by the very ones that he's been called to lead. You ever, ever tried to help somebody in your life only to have them turn on you before it was over? Or maybe another illustration, say your kids come to you, they've been out playing and you know, they fall, they scrape their little knee and it's a deep cut and you know what you've got to do. You've got to give them still so that you can pour in some disinfectant. And what do you tell them? Now this is going to sting. This is gonna hurt worse than it does now but it's gotta hurt worse before it ever gets better. And then as you pour in that disinfectant and you hear their little cries and you experience tears in your own eyes because of their little cries, but you know that pain is part of the process toward healing. Folks, sometimes in life, things get harder before they ever get better. The curveball experience of life, this is part of the process by which God molds us and shapes us into the men and women that he wants us to be. It's the way of the cross. It's the way of discipleship. Gordon MacDonald calls these the disruptive moments in life. He says these are those unanticipated events which we would choose to avoid if it were all possible. We don't like these disruptive moments. They're too often associated with pain and inconvenience, failure and humiliation, and that seems to be the human condition. And before I close, let me just leave you with some closing lessons about these curveballs that get thrown at us in life. Right from this passage of Scripture and the story of Moses and the people here. First of all, lesson number one, life's curveballs are often divine appointments for us. Even though this situation is unforeseen to Moses and the people of Israel, God is working out his plan for their good. And in the moment... From his vantage point to Moses, it seemed that God had not delivered his people at all like he had promised. But you see, you go into chapter six and you look at the very next verse, God's going to say to Moses, Moses, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, he will send them out. With a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. In other words, this increased hardship, this curveball was all part of the process. It would be a greater stage upon which God would showcase his glory and his power. And so in that way, it becomes a divine appointment. 
Folks, the very thing that we would avoid if given the choice is most often the thing that God uses in our lives. I, I, I came across a little poem in a devotional magazine that I thought was just so interesting. It deals with this very thing. Now listen to this. The title of this is called, This Thing Is From Me. Now imagine that this is a letter written by God to someone who's had a, a curveball, a major curveball thrown their way in life. My child, I have a message for you today. Let me whisper it in your ear that it may gild with glory any storm clouds which may arise and smooth the rough places upon you may have to tread. In short, it's only five words, but let them sink into your soul. Use them as a pillow upon which to rest your weary head. This thing is from me. Have you ever thought of it? All that concerns you concerns me too. I would have you learn when temptations assail you, when the enemy comes in like a flood, that this thing is from me, that your weakness needs my might, and your safety lies in letting me fight for you, for you are very precious in my sight, and it's my special delight to educate you. Are you in financial difficulties? Is it hard to make both ends meet? This thing is from me. For I am your purse bearer and would have you draw from and depend upon me. My supplies are limitless. I would have you prove my promises. Are you in difficult circumstances, surrounded by people who don't understand you, who never consult your taste, who put you in the background? This thing is from me. I am the God of circumstance. You came not to this place by accident. It's the place God meant for you. Are you passing through a night of sorrow? This thing is from me, for I'm a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. I've let earthly comforters fail you that by turning to me, you might obtain everlasting consolation. Has some friend disappointed you, one to whom you opened up your heart? This thing is from me. I've allowed this disappointment to come that you may learn that I am your confidant. Has someone repeated things about you that are untrue? Leave them to me and draw closer to me, thy shelter out of reach of the strife of tongues, for I will bring forth my righteousness as the light and my judgments as the noonday. Have your plans been upset? Are you bowed down and weary? This thing is from me. You made your plans, then came asking me to bless them, but I would have you let me plan for you, and then I take the responsibility for this thing is too much for you, and you're not able to perform it by yourself. You're an instrument, not an agent. Have you longed to do some great work for me, but instead you've been laid aside on a bed of pain and weakness? This thing is from me. I could not have your attention in your busy days, and I want to teach you some profound lessons. They also serve who stand and wait. Some of my greatest workers are those shut out from active service that they may learn to wield the weapon of prayer. Are you suddenly called upon to occupy a difficult and responsible position? This thing is from me. I'm trusting you with the possession of difficulties. For this thing, the Lord your God will bless you in all of your works and in all to which you put your hand. So this day I place in your hands this pot of holy oil. Make use of it freely, my child. Let every circumstance as it arises, every word that pains you, 
every interruption that would make you impatient, every revelation of your own weakness, be anointed with it. And remember, interruptions are divine instructions. This thing is for me. Now, folks, listen, the curveballs of life oftentimes are opportunities for us, divine appointments. And then the second thing, life's curveballs produce dynamic growth in us. Moses is learning something about God here. He and the people are going to learn something about God's ways. They're going to learn something about God's power to save. God's not going to apply some cosmetic solution to their problem. No, he's going to deal with their captivity at the deepest possible level. In the same way, that's what Jesus does for my sin and your sin at the cross. Moses comes to learn this story, that this is God's story, that the stage upon which God showcases his glory, it's oftentimes the most impossible stage. When things look the bleakest, the darkest, the most hopeless, God comes through in power for his namesake. And in the final lesson, life's curveballs require a dependent response from us. Not independent from God, but dependent upon God. That's the response. Now here's the thing, when when the curveball comes your way, you can do a number of things. You can shake your fist, you can clench your fist, you can end up exhausted and full of despair, or you can accept it for what it is, realize you're in the hands of a sovereign God, and do what Moses does in the midst of his confusion. Moses turns to the Lord. That's what you do, friend, when you don't know which end is up. When you can't see what's going on around you or where this unexpected turn of events seem to be taking you, you've got to turn to the Lord and commit your way to him. And the scripture says that he keeps his own as the apple of his eye. Would you stand with me for prayer this morning? Thank God for the curveballs of life because it's there that God proves the depth of his great love and his mercy. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged, but take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness, so take it to the Lord in prayer. Are we weak and heavy laden, cumbered with a load of care? Precious Savior, still our refuge. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Moses, do thy friends despise, forsake thee. Take it to the Lord in prayer. In his arms he'll take and shield thee. Thou wilt find a solace there. When life throws you the curve, when things come out of the blue that you didn't see coming, man, take it to the Lord in prayer. Trust in him. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Listen, thank God that he's a sovereign God, he's an on-time God, and when it doesn't seem like things are working out according to his plan, we trust him. 
and we trust that all things are, God's working them together ultimately for his glory and for our good. Lord, thank you for your word and that you're a trusted friend, Lord, in times of difficulty and confusion in our lives. Lord, thank you that you're our deliverer and that in Jesus Christ, Lord, you've come to set the captive free. And Father, if there's any man, woman, boy, or girl in the room this morning that doesn't know Christ as their Savior, that needs to be set free from the bondage and the shackles of sin, Lord, may today they turn to Christ who died on the cross, rose again from the dead, and he's our living Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.